So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1, I'm going to read to you the first 18 verses. We'll spend most of our time this morning in the first five verses, and we will spend most of our time there, but in the next week or two, we'll work our way through what we call the prologue. That is the the, the introduction, if you will, to the Gospel of John. John, uh, one commentator puts it this way, the prologue is like John's foyer. He's inviting you into, into the foyer. All right, you know, take off your coat, take off your shoes. Let me tell you about the house. Let me tell you about what's going on here. But, but come in, relax. This is where we're going. It's the beginning in verse 1 of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about that light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. More than any other week that I pray that the Word of God comes alive for us here and it becomes more than ink on a page, John wants that very thing to happen for us. That the Word that God speaks to us would become visible and alive in the same way that Jesus was alive on the earth. If I could summarize the first five verses here in a way that would make sense to us, in a way that I think applies to us the most powerfully, and we'll unpack this. Jesus is not plan B. Jesus is not plan B. Jesus is not the alternative. Now, anytime we open the Gospels, there's something amazing that happens. We encounter the fulfillment of every promise in the Bible. We encounter the archetype and the the actual God of God in Christ, the, the greater Jonah, the greater David, the greater Solomon. We, we encounter that one, wisdom embodied, and we see the one that every single other part of the Bible points toward. 
Now, many have said of the Gospel of John that if there was one book that they had to choose to give to someone that they would understand the text of the Bible, this would be the book they give. Martin Luther put it this way. He, this, this, the Gospel of John was written so that we would have the Bible and it would be the Bible in case we lost the Bible. So John's words exist on a spectrum from simple words that even a child could understand to deep words that a genius could never fathom. So John's words are like an ocean in that sense. There are parts of the ocean where a child can wade in safely. And there are parts of the ocean that are so deep and unfathomable, you will die trying to get there. You can't survive it, much less measure it. And so John begins by telling us some powerful things. And I don't know if you caught that. Did you catch the language that we're going to have to get used to hearing? He uses deep metaphorical and poetic language, but then he uses very simple pictures like life and death. When they hear over and over and over again, like light and dark. Something that even a child would understand. So now put your finger there, for example, in John chapter 1 and flip over, if you will, to John chapter 21. The very last, I believe it's page 590 if you've got one of the blue Bibles. But if you'll flip over to, uh, to the very last chapter of, of, of John and the verses preceding it that are the last words in chapter 20 begin what's called the epilogue. So we just read the prologue. Here's the beginning. And I'm going to beat you to the punch here. I'm going to spoil the end of this story. And we're going to read verse 30 and 31 that you see here at the end of chapter 20. Now, if you're reading an ESV, you'll see a little caption before that. And it says, the purpose of this book. I like it when writers give me that. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So John's saying, I wanted to tell you some important things. I didn't cover everything. In fact, he knows Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Man, they covered those probably. They'll take care of those things. There are things that Jesus did, signs and wonders in the presence of the disciples. They're not in this book, but verse 31 tells us, here's why I wrote the book, John tells us. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The purpose of the Gospel of John is this, life in Jesus' name. This is the purpose. And if I could just hijack that and let that be the trajectory for our time over the next several months and maybe even as long as a year together, that would be it. So if you're in this room, just make sure you catch where this, where this begins. If you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, um, maybe, maybe the claims of Jesus you, you're highly skeptical about. You're not really sure there is a God or that Jesus, of all people, is connected to that God, much less, as John tells us, is God. I'm really glad you're here, and I'm, I'm glad you're here with doubts. I'm glad you're here with your skepticism and with your questions. I'm, I'm glad you're here with your concerns because John actually says, I'm writing this book to settle those concerns. I'm, I'm writing this book to win you over to something. My goal is that you would see something in Jesus and then you would have life as a result, that what you're currently experiencing in dreariness and darkness, you would experience as light in Jesus. And what seems like a slow and painful death you would see in Jesus is actually life in his name. So this is the goal. This is where John's taking us, and this is where I want to spend our time 
looking for not only the shallow and simple things, simple, for example, like the vocabulary in the Gospel of John is probably the, the simplest of any book in the New Testament. He doesn't use a lot of big, fancy words. When he does, it's very rare. And when he does, he explains them to the point where even you'll find yourself like listening to John and you'll find him repeating things, speaking as though you're like a child. And I, I want to urge you, don't resist the temptation to be, to be offended by that, for John to speak, you, speak to you as a child. He even says in his letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he closes one of those letters and he says, Dear children, like a father to his beloved children, keep yourselves from idols. And so he wants these people to understand the gospel in the simplest possible ways, while at the same time speaking about things that are inexplicable, ineffable. And so you'll find yourself going back and forth as we walk through the Gospel of John, seeing very simple, often trite, maybe even simplistic ways of thinking, right next to very deep, complex, abstract ways of thinking. You'll find things that are simultaneously shallow and simple, and yet deep and unfathomable. Now, I believe this serves as a model for what the church ought to look like. We ought to be the people that aren't afraid to either simplify the gospel to the point where children can hear and understand. I love that about John. There, there are verses in this text that are ripe for memorization, and most of your kids that are next door, if they are next door, we always warn you whenever we can, we're not babysitting them. Uh, there's no babysitting that goes on in this building. Instead, we want to lead children to love and have affections for Jesus, and they'll be memorizing on a regular basis texts of Scripture right out of the Gospel of John because they're just simple. I mean, the shortest verse in the Bible is John eleven thirty five. It's an it's its own verse. Jesus wept. There you go. Scripture memory. Bang. You're off to the races. Don't think you can't do it. But on the other hand, there are. Also, there's also another aspect of understanding the gospel that we as a church model, and that is to not, not also, we're not only just afraid, we don't want to be afraid of simple things, but we also aren't going to be afraid of deep and complex things, things that are humbling, things that allow us to go, man, I, I don't know. If I knew the answer to this one, I would be God, but since I don't, thank God that he is God and allows me to see it. I believe this is a picture to what a church ought to look like. A church that has in its midst babies, both in age, but also maybe in maturity, maybe in spiritual growth, newborns. And we don't belittle that. We don't disparage that. So maybe if like Jesus is new to you, this is, this is going to feel right for you. There's going to be simple things. You're going to go, ah, I, I get it. I get it. But we're also not going to be afraid of, of having in the same context people who are digging deeply, who are beginning to think more powerfully and even with greater complexity. You'll see both of these things simultaneous. And don't miss that because as we saw here, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. Now he's talking about a Word who is God and the Word is God or, and with God and it's in the beginning and then it's a person. We see He, verse 2, the Word is a person. So did you get that? On, on one hand, it was so simple. In the beginning was the Word. So simplistic. And then, wait, the Word is a human. Now we're in the poetic, Right? Wait, a word is a person? A person is a word. Get it? And it invites us to think more deeply. This is a model for what the church ought to look like. The gospel both in its simplicity and its profundity. Not one or the other. In fact, one 
demands the other. One should never be seen to the detriment or obscurity of the other. The gospel should be both simple, Jesus, in my place, for my sake, on my behalf, and yet deep, from beginning to end, alpha and omega, since before things were created, Jesus was. John is, as I would say then, as a result, Jesus for everyone. You could title the Gospel of John, Jesus for all time, or Jesus for the whole world. Jesus, the living, breathing, as he says here, word of God. Like Psalm 19, God's word has a worldly impact. And the purpose of John here is that we would believe and have a life in his name. That we would come upon a divine mystery. Now we'll begin to unpack some of the ways in which this is very unique from the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We'll come back and forth. There's a ton of stuff in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that isn't in John, and vice versa. We'll come back to that as as we work through the next few chapters. But they all begin starting to ask a question. Where did Jesus come from? Who is he and how did he get here? The Gospel of Matthew wants to make a case, wants to show that Jesus' story came from God's story of his chosen people. And so the first few chapters of Matthew tells us about a, a priest named Zechariah, and then he gives us a, a lineage. Uh, don't be a, a, you know, terrified by the so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. Matthew puts that in his gospel so that you would see Jesus comes from the line of God's chosen people. After all, Matthew was a good religious Jew, and he was speaking to predominantly religious Jews, and so he gives him a genealogy of Jesus back to David. Now, it's kind of a like a tongue-in-cheek, tongue-in-cheek, tongue-in-cheek like wink-wink kind of thing, like This is Jesus' lineage. But if you notice what John did also, he says the word was with God and the word was God, saying from the beginning that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. Now, Matthew makes that same case, and that's why his genealogy is wink, wink, you know, kind of nudge, nudge. Like these are his fathers. Because the way that Matthew makes a case that Jesus was from God is he was born of a virgin. And his lineage is sort of in quotes but still to these people. Mark wants us to know that Jesus comes from God and he's a fulfillment, as I read just a moment ago, of God's prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah, God's promise to make straight the way in the wilderness so that the people would come unbridled and unfettered to God. And he starts with John's baptism. John the Baptist baptized in the wilderness so that Mark tells us, wants to get the the same picture of Adam and God's people wandering in the wilderness, and Jesus is the better Adam. Luke wants us to know that Jesus came from everybody. And so he gives a genealogy as well. Tells the story of the virgin birth just like Matthew, but his genealogy goes past David all the way back to Adam. Why? Because Luke was a Greek, and Luke was probably speaking to a more Gentile audience. And so for them, it wouldn't really be significant for those people that Jesus was of Jewish Jewish lineage. In fact, that probably would have been kind of a disqualifier, like, so what if Jesus is a Jew? I'm not a Jew. It's got nothing to do with me. And Luke goes to great lengths to see, no, 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 no. His lineage goes back to the first of all things. We're all, in that sense, brothers with this Jesus. And then comes John. You, You ever notice in any group of people, there's always that guy who's just trying to like make a hashtag with a deep thought. Do you have that, that person in your group? Like, 
The person who just like wants to zoom out and make some profound statement. You know, it's actually this. Right? That's John. Warning, if you don't know that guy, you are that guy. <laughs> and everyone knows it. The person who's like overcomplicates or like zooms out and, you know, and you're just enjoying, I don't know, something simple like popcorn. And like, you ever notice how life is like popcorn, man? <laughs> they don't always say man at the end of it. But that's John. Without all the pothead overtones in that, that's, that's John. John's that guy who zooms out and goes like, no, 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 man. No, 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 you, you don't get it. You don't understand. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is better. And he wanted to show, not just as, as the other guys show, like where, how he entered into history. Jesus, we have here, has a theological origin. And John wants to show the divine theological origin. He wants to drop a philosophical bomb to blow everyone's minds. And he wants to show all the people listening, that Jesus actually came from eternity. He was not created. The first Christians would say he was eternally begotten. He was in the beginning. He was the beginning. Now we'll see some distinct emphases in the Gospel of John as well. And one of these things is the thing we just sang about just a moment ago, that there was a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit, that in some divine mystery, God exists, as we would say, as one God, but in three persons. And we see that here. More is told to us about what the earliest Christians believe was a confession of a mystery, that God is triune, He is a trinity. More of that comes from the Gospel of John than any of the other Gospels. In fact, more of what we understand about the Holy Spirit comes from John's Gospel than any of the other Gospels. John talks about it more than anything else. So let's begin to walk through this. Now you get the idea, you get the picture of who you're talking to, someone who's going to give us very simple things that even a child could latch onto, pictures through words that even a child could envision, but formulated in such a way that are so complex and deep, we'll be trying to dig the depths and fathom the depths of their mystery forever and ever. So in the beginning, very first phrase, in the beginning, Stop right there. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, this is a phrase that would, 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 should like, jump out to you. This is the very first phrase that's in the beginning of the Bible. In fact, the, the Bible was regularly, before we came along and, and ascribed titles to it, the Bible was regularly simply like co-noted by the first few words of each book. So the word Genesis simply means beginning. And the, the, the book of the Bible we know as Genesis would have first been known as its first phrase, in the beginning. And the title of the book of Genesis would have been, in the beginning. And this is interesting because John's gospel was written anonymously. And there's a sense in which, like, like we find later he refers to himself in some, some really profound ways that, that point to like, oh, oh, it's John. Oh, I see. But he didn't sign this book. And so even the, the title that you have in the Bible you're staring at says the gospel according to John. That was later added. That was, that was deduced by like, of course you wrote this, right? He says some things in there that's like, obviously this is John, right? And there they are. And we added this as a title. But, but notice the first phrase that would have served as the title for the first people that would have gotten this book off the shelf. The, the first people that would have seen this circulated, the first 
particular phrase, which would have been its title, would have already grabbed your attention in the beginning. Don't miss that. That'd be like if I published a book, right? And I titled that book, The Bible. Right? Like, I'm going to, oh, Jonathan wrote a book. That's awesome. What's it called? It's called The Bible. Wait, Jonathan wrote The Bible. You get it? Do you get what's going on? You, you would immediately go like, okay, a couple things going on here. First of all, this guy's crazy, right? Maybe he's a, an egomaniac. He thinks he can rewrite the Bible. Are you kidding? But Or on the other hand, he was trying to say something, to zoom out and tell a story in line with the beginning, the first story Genesis started. And Genesis 1 tells us that in the beginning, God spoke and life just started exploding. Each stage of creation explodes into life. And then God said, and then God said. And that first phrase, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John isn't trying to plagiarize the Bible. He's trying to reword that very same phrase. In the beginning, God. And what does he start with? In the beginning, Jesus. Genesis says, in the beginning was God. John says, in the beginning, yeah, God, Jesus. And that was this word. In fact, the first rebellion that we see in the book of Genesis was what? It was about God's word. Did God really say? Is that really what God said? Get the picture? And just in the same way that every single and God said, explodes into life in the book of Genesis. We find here that God speaks, and he speaks a word that is Jesus that explodes into new life. So in the beginning, calling back, hearkening back to the story of all of history, it says, was the word. Now that word, we're going to have to unpack for the next several weeks, but the Greek word here is logos, similar to where we would get like the word logic. Now John's doing something pretty profound here. He comes along, and he says, the logos, the logic, or the reason, is in fact Jesus. In the beginning was the logos, or the word, the reason. And the word was with God, so there was a reason in the beginning, and the word was God. Now, this is important. I've got to do a little history. At this particular time, Greek philosophers, for about a couple centuries at this particular point, used the word logos as a philosophical term, a way to understand why everything is the way that everything is. And the way that they rationalized or explained the way that everything is, is they described that, that mysterious order over all things as the logos, the reason. We might use the word like the purpose. But we find here a divine mystery. And now we're back into the unfathomable for geniuses stage, right? He's making a reference so that the genius philosophers of his day would go, whoa, 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 wait, what? He's making a philosophical argument. It's a loaded term. It's the reason. And he's saying Jesus is the reason for life. Now, Greeks would at that time debated the logos of life, the reason, the purpose of life. Why are we here? What is all of this about? What's our potential? What's our reason for being a human being? And John here is connecting the dots. What is our reason for being? Well, God speaks the reason in the beginning. And that reason for being is Jesus. Don't miss that. I think John was probably connecting the dots for some of you who had that same question. That if you were honest, you would admit you're asking and wrestling that same question. 
Why am I here? Maybe in the most shallow possible sense, you're wondering, why am I here now? Like, why am I, like, why am I in this room, sitting here listening to this guy? You're welcome to have that question. John wants you to have that question. He wants you to go, like, what am I, what am I even doing here? Some of you may be even asking, like, why am I in this city? Why am I in Sioux Falls? Why am I here? What's the purpose? What's the meaning of all this? Some of you may be even asking, why do I exist? Why am I even alive? Don't miss that. John welcomes those skeptical questions. And the answer he postulates for every single one of them is singular. Why are you here this morning? Jesus. Why are you in this city? What if it's Jesus? What if there's actually something God's doing to glorify Jesus and he's brought you here for? What what are you doing? Why are you even alive? Why was I even born, God? And he says, Jesus, why am I here? Why do I exist? Jesus, don't miss the encouragement here. Again, it's a a, a weighty philosophical argument, but it's meant to be grounded in answering the basic question that you probably ask implicitly every single morning. What's the point? Why should I go to work? Why should I do these things? What's the point? It's just going to happen again And he says, look, there's something going on here that God has been doing from the beginning, and it points towards Jesus. The rationale and the authority of God, the logos, the reason for existing is Jesus. Greeks would have debated it, but he's saying, look, there is a meaning. Now, now I want to deviate for just a moment. Now, the Greeks would have had some other people that would have come along, like what we would call postmoderns, and they would simply say, there is no meaning. And anyone trying to assert meaning is actually just trying to like control me and assert power. They're trying to just like infiltrate my own agency and they're trying to get me to do something. And so often a lot of people will come along and say, there is no meaning, there is no answer to these questions, which ironically is postulating a meaning. When you say there is no meaning, you're saying you know the meaning and it doesn't exist. So he's saying that like, there were groups of people here that would have come along and postulated that like there is no meaning, there is no purpose in life, and they tended to split into two separate groups. There was, what well, at this particular time, a group of philosophers that once they realized there's no meaning, they just said, okay, and they became Epicurean. You've heard this word. They're, they're, they're people who just simply live for pleasure and self-expression, and they live for the finer pleasures in life. An Epicurean has a higher order of taste because, after all, since there's no great meaning, the best thing we can do is make best, the best use of the time we have and enjoy what we do have. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the Epicurean. Life is all about freedom and individual expression and individual experience. Have all the pleasures rolled up in life because since there is no meaning, let's just enjoy what we can. That would have been the Epicurean side. The other side would have been what are known as the Stoics, And they would say, no, that's bad. Pleasure and emotion and subjective experience, those things are are foolhardy, they're untrustworthy. And so they believed what was actually value was order. And once you remove all the emotion from, from life, then you understand what's morally right, what's morally good, and you enjoy order. And there is a structure to things. And since there is no great meaning in life, the best way we can find meaning in this limited life is to order things properly. Now, Before you think that I'm rambling about some strange philosophy that no longer exists that John was addressing, I want to encourage you, this Epicurean side, if you're more liberal in the room, this is you, right? But if you're more conservative in this room, 
You're more stoic. And fundamentally, you're saying, since there is no meaning, the best thing we can do is just exalt individual experience, individual expression, individual pleasure. And so anytime someone comes along and says, you can't do that because it's wrong, you're like, what could be wrong? It's not hurting anybody. This isn't hurting anyone. And it feels so good, how could it be wrong? It just still exists. And it fundamentally is a way of saying, since there is no greater meaning, let's just like, like suck all the meaning out of life we can through pleasure, through self-expression. Don't hinder my freedom, right? But then on the other side, if you're more conservative in the room, you're probably over here, right? Like that person makes you crazy, right? And you're like, you know what, you know what the world needs? Since there is no greater meaning in the world, what we need to do to experience joy in this world is to have order. There are rules, there are laws, and we need to conserve that way and conserve that order right? Over here, these people look at a Jackson Pollock painting, and they're like, it's beautiful! It's amazing! And over here, they're like, it's a mess! It's crazy! You get it? And these tend to be more artistic types, and these tend to be more engineer types, right? Expression and experience and pleasure. Over here is order, explanation, rationale, and logic. Notice what John is saying to both of those people who have verged off of the path and are fundamentally saying then since there is no meaning we've got to find meaning in self-expression or in pleasure and freedom and, and since there is no meaning we've got to find meaning in order and controlling chaos john's saying you're both wrong there is meaning there is a purpose there is a rationale and it is jesus and don't miss this this is what's so confounding to us connect the dots He's saying there is a meaning, there is a way of understanding things. Both the Epicurean and the Stoic agree on one thing, though. Don't talk about it. And whether you're in liberal circles or conservative circles, to actually talk about the Lordship of Christ will get you thrown out. Because the funny thing that happens is that when we see Jesus, we saw this last week, he destroys our categories and he demands something of us. Did you catch that? In the beginning, there was that word, the reason, it's Jesus. And the word was with God, and the word was God. It's still a difficult thing to talk about. And don't you dare imply to a conservative that order doesn't bring existential contentment. And don't you dare imply to a liberal that human freedom doesn't actually bring existential contentment. Don't you dare imply that their ways of thinking or believing don't actually fulfill their intended cause. Don't do that, because that will make them angry. And what happens when you're a person like me is you get accused of being too political. And that's really just a nice way of saying, I really liked your political stances, but not that one. And don't miss what John is saying. You can't put Jesus into a category. You have to take your categories and subject them to Jesus. That, that's where we fall here. And then he gives us a Trinitarian formula. Did you catch that? We just sang about it just a moment ago. The word was with God. The word was God. So a divine mystery is being declared here. Jesus is God, right? So at this, right now, 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 now we're in kids' connection side of the wall, right? Right? Who is God? Or who is Jesus? You would tell, you know, any one of those, those kids. He's God. Jesus is God. The same thing. And he says something else. And yet, Jesus is distinct from God. 
And we would declare it this way. Jesus is truly God or fully God and truly human. There is in this paradox a picture of the character and nature of God that confounds the imagination. And so on one hand, we're saying two very, very simple things, right? Things that a child could understand. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. But when you say them right together, all of a sudden your mind gets blown. Is both? Is both of those things? The Word was with God, but the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. And He goes back and forth and bookends Jesus' divinity. This is a divine mystery. Jesus is God, and yet Jesus is distinct from God. You get it? Simple and shallow and yet ineffable. Wait, so Jesus was with God and therefore distinct from God. So God created Jesus? Is that what you're saying? Nope. Verse 3. All things were made through him. Now one of the first heresies that came about for the first church was a man by the name of Arius. We'll talk about him later. And he said that Jesus was a created being of God. And so friends of ours that are maybe Jehovah's Witnesses, they would still affirm this. They would say like, Jesus is really awesome, but he's not God. And so John wants you to know right off the bat, no, 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 he's God. He was with God, and yet he is the creator. All things were created through him. And without him was not anything that was made, or anything made that was made. Don't miss this. Jesus is the creator. He is the author. He is the designer. And he is the inventor of all things. Don't miss this. Remember I just told you, it's like Jesus is the rationale. And I want to hopefully like begin to invite you to believe that Jesus is all in all. Everything's held together in him and for him. And there's a greater joy and contentment in that. And one of the ways that, that we, we think of that, one of the ways that we, that we like often miss this, I would even say, is that we offer moral claims on things without knowing their purpose. Let me give you an example. One of the examples I've, you heard me say in, in we walking through the book of Jonah uh, would have been like this, right? So like if I was, I was walking in here and, and maybe, you know, this is a pretty well put together building, but maybe like, uh, maybe if I saw some nails that hadn't been knocked in and they were sticking out, right? And I just saw, man, that needs to be fixed. Someone needs to drive that nail in. And so what I did is I would take off my watch, right? And with my watch, I would drive in that nail. Well, and the watch would break, right? And I could, I could naturally surmise, I could make a moral argument, this watch is not any good. Tried to drive in these nails with this watch, and it broke. This watch is no good. Get it? But you don't know the goodness or badness, the rightness or wrongness of a thing until you know its purpose. You can't rightly say what a thing is good or bad for until you know what it actually is for. And he's saying, look, Jesus is the author. Jesus is the designer. Jesus is the inventor of all things. And so we consider the possibility that what he says about what we do is actually better. Jesus is the principle of existence. It'd be like if you tried to use a vacuum as a doorstop or as a space heater as a toaster. Someone would come in and be like, I don't think you understand what that's for. Like, I don't think, you're, you're not ever going to enjoy this thing because that's not what it was designed to do. And Jesus does the same thing because until you know what it's for, you don't even know its real value. Connect the dots. Many of you right now, you're, you're living in a spot where you feel aimless, frustrated, and depressed. You feel like a failure. 
haven't accomplished all the things that you want to have accomplished. You're certainly not where you thought you would be. And now you're starting to make premature moral arguments about yourself. Why am I even here? Why should I keep going? And I would argue that if your answer to that question is anything other than Jesus, it's like you're trying to bash in a nail with a watch. For some of you, your work and your family and the way you've been trying to get meaning out of those things has been like trying to use a space heater as a toaster. It just leads to frustration. Now back to the analogy, the watch, right? right? Imagine what the creator would say. Now this is a fancy watch. This is a gift uh, by my mother-in-law. Uh, it's one of those gifts where she was like, uh, this is going to be your Father's Day, birthday, and Christmas. You're never going to get a gift again. That's what that was. <laughs> I don't know how your family works. We, like, that's, that's kind of a thing. We're like, that, yeah, that, that, no, you're not going to get another one. You blew the budget on one thing. So I got this fancy watch. And it would say this was designed in California. Right? Now imagine if I was smashing it to pieces and bad-mouthing all the people who designed it. And imagine the designer walked into the room. What would that person think? What would that person immediately want to do? Like, stop! You, you don't get it! You don't understand it! And you're constantly going to be frustrated. You're constantly going to think the designer's a moron because you don't really know what that person designed the thing to do. And friend, don't miss this. There's a discontentment that circulates in our life until we begin to consider the possibility that this is true. All things were made through Jesus. And without him... Not a thing was made that was made. Not a thing was made that was made in verse 4. And to begin to understand that, catch that, is to experience life. To experience light where there once was darkness. You see, the word of God, the one who came to be flesh, Jesus, is our goodness. He is our moral rightness. And until we understand that he's the center of all things and all things came to be because of him, then we will constantly be trying to take the things around them and use them for something they were never designed to do. Your job was not meant to be your existential contentment. Your singleness or marriage was never designed to be your reason for being alive. And that's why it's devastating you. The relationships around you, they were never meant to carry the weight of the entire universe. And to begin to consider that those things are failing because they were never designed to carry that weight is the beginning of what he says here. It's life. It's light. To begin to understand that those things were never meant to carry that weight is to begin to see a greater meaning, the weight that was carried for us by Jesus. Don't miss this. To consider that possibility is to actually experience life. We'll see later, life that is more abundant, more full, and then light, where there once was darkness. But notice where he lands. He says, the light shines, verse 5, in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. This is profound for us. This means that to be a gospel people, we are not allowed to default to a few things. We are not allowed to default to the herd mentality. There is something counter-existential in Christ that now causes us to be counter-cultural in the world. 
Christ has done something counter-existential so that now we exist as individuals and communities in a counter-cultural fashion. Notice what he postures or the way he places Jesus as light and then evidently there's darkness that Jesus comes to dispel. The way I would say is this, and we'll talk about this in the days to come, Jesus exposes and opposes darkness. He exposes first and then he opposes next. Brace yourself on this one, because it means that Jesus exposes what's actually true with light, and he is against darkness. This means that as a people, we will always be in a posture to offend. Like, we will always speak something and exist in such a way that the outside world looking at us will be strangely repelled and attracted at the same time. Like offended, oh my goodness, these people don't love and follow all the things that we love, and yet there'll be something in them that goes like, man, I wish I could have that. Boy, I wish I could have freedom from all the things that are running my world. So let me give you an example of a herd mentality. I hinted at it just a minute ago, that whatever we're supposed to say isn't supposed to be easily categorized. Right? Notice what it says. The darkness has not overcome it. Uh, one, of your tra- one of the translations they may have is that the darkness hasn't comprehended it. The, the, co- the darkness hasn't been able to encapsulate it. The way I would apply this for us is that, that worldly cultural categories cannot encapsulate or contain the light of Jesus. Jesus doesn't fit into those categories. He bursts them. And when you try to fit him into that category, it really makes you angry. It's, you find it first to be very offensive because you thought everything fits into that category. And people will say, as I said to a preacher, you're getting too political. They never, ever say that. Never say that of a preacher whenever he supports their popular political stance. But if I read this right, there's something about Jesus that destroys categories across the board. Whether they be political, ethnic, socioeconomic, geographic. Jesus does something that scatters the darkness. And the darkness has to flee because it can't coexist with the light. And that means that we're going to be a people who say things. We're going to speak words of justice in places that offend every single person across the board. We have hard things to say for people. We have hard things to say to people about unarmed black men being shot by those who were charged to serve and protect them. Feel it? Feel it tugging and provoking? Not done. We have hard things to say to people who are experiencing economic injustice. We begin to realize that if if having forces someone to not have, there's a radical thing that the light dispels and it will offend our sensibilities. Now there's both conservative and liberal Epicureans who hold tightly to their individual liberties. And Jesus asks us to lay those liberties at the foot of the cross. And so we say to both the conservative who is clinging tightly to their individual liberty to have a gun that kills people, be willing to let go of that for a greater loyalty. And we say it to the liberal who is holding to their individual liberty to take away life that's in a womb. Please let go of that 
And we equally offend both sides. Why? Because the light dispels the darkness. The category, the cultural nuance cannot contain this Jesus. And if your Jesus agrees with all of your loyalties, it's not Jesus. You've been enculturated to the darkness. Don't miss it. Jesus has come to give you something better, freer, a new team, a new kingdom, a new life, a life for the fullness, a way that God designed to be experienced from the beginning. And this light starts to pry our loyalties away from the darkness. I know it hurts at first. We don't expect complete agreement off across every single issue. But mostly we don't expect agreement across issues of light and darkness. Things that point away from Jesus and his sufficiency, we, we respectfully disagree. There is a greater meaning. There is a logos, a reason, a design. And this light penetrates darkness. It gives an existential conflict that demands the removal of one or the other. Jesus says that you will either love one master or another. You can't serve them both. This means that for some of you, and you know this is real, following Jesus will cost you your friends. I know some of you it already has. But come and hear this word that's spoken. Come and hear this word. Because you're probably wondering, why can't I get the world to revolve around me, right? Why can't, get everybody, why can't I get everybody to do everything I want them to do? It's so frustrating when they don't do everything I want them to do. I hate that. And you're always wondering why that happens. You know why? Because the world doesn't revolve around you. But there is a person that does revolve around. And he's a better person. And the word he speaks to us is a word of God from the beginning. Don't miss this. Before you had even considered a new way of living, before you had even rebelled against God, God had already spoken a word to win you back. Before there was a chasm between you and God, God was already building and it completed a bridge to draw you back over that chasm. God did this for us, and so that means that we begin to experience that towards other. What's your driving force? What's the thing you're living for? What's your logos? What's your reason? Is it image? Is it beauty? You'll wrinkle. Is it physical prowess, athleticism? Your bones and muscles will start to deteriorate. Is it relationships? You know what happens. They'll make you bitter. They'll fail. In fact, we find that if we're looking for existential meaning apart from Christ, it's actually a form of a rebellion. It's like using a hammer, excuse me, like using a watch to hammer in a nail. It's an insult to the Creator. And it's futility to the rebel. But if we turn from it and see Jesus as light, as meaning, as existential hope, put this together, we find that Jesus was waiting for us all along. Before we even considered that our purpose was futile and turned back to God, he was already waiting for us. And this is a beautiful thing. The divine word that God spoke wasn't a decree from far, far away. Hear the good news. It was a person, and his name is Jesus. And the d divine decree that God spoke to us wasn't from a distance, but it was at an intimate proximity. God has punched a hole in the roof of the world, and he has climbed in with us so that we would no longer live in darkness. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. There is a greater hope and a greater life and a greater light in Jesus than anywhere else. And to consider that possibility is the beginning of life to the more abundant and full measure that God intended for us to experience. Let's pray.
God, I thank you so much for your goodness towards us. God, I thank you for simplifying things uh, to the point that someone like me and others in this room might understand them. But I also admit, God, that these things are so complex and beyond our understanding. Uh, They demand something of our imagination that we cannot possibly muster. You're You're going to have to give it to us. So, If there's some in this room and believing and trusting in Jesus above all else, that just seems absurd. God, I thank you that they're here. I don't at all want to disagree with that. I don't at all want to like rob that. It it is absurd. And the only way that we could do this is if our eyes are opened by some supernatural means. So if there's some in this room and their eyes haven't been opened, maybe, maybe now they're just being pried open to consider that Jesus' way is better and his design for things is better and joy in him is better and meaning through him is better. Would you begin to just pry open their eyes and, and feel a, a, just a small measure of the hope that comes from knowing that this world doesn't get the last word, that darkness doesn't encompass us, but in Christ we have light and life. Grant them the gift of faith. Open their eyes that even today they would confess that you are Lord, that you're the name above every name. In you, there is life and light. There is a kingdom that brings joy and contentment forevermore. For those of us in the room that we've just simply rebelled against that, we've constantly looked to put our hope and trust into lesser things, would you even now remind us, show us that you have done something for us. You have entered into this existence and you have taken our place. You have paid all that was owed to God the Father and you have done so even before we were even in debt. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.